So let's get to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I will be reading from the New Living Translation. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome, beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is entirely, truly, nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. May God bless his word. Good morning. Some of you, your wife told you you could skip and go golfing. And you're wondering after reading that, why you didn't take her up on it. (laughs) I feel the same way. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. As I would like to title the message, Always Positive and Uplifting, Ecclesiastes. You guys remember when Life 1025 had that? Always positive uplifting. I'd be like, nope, not my life. Cite Ecclesiastes. I think this morning is a morning of stark contrasts. I don't know if you felt the Holy Spirit during worship, but the sense of the Father running after you only wanting to be in his presence, the verses in Psalms about it's actually better just to be an attendant at the doorway of the place where God resides than to be in the shade and the tent of those who are wicked. This beautiful overflowing love that the Father has and being in his presence contrasted with the words of everything is meaningless. There's like these two different, everything is meaningless or we find our whole purpose in you. I think that contrast is just going to continue through the morning. Maybe you're here this morning and those words that Gary read, which I will sum up as everything is meaningless. We get nothing for our efforts. Everything just repeats again and there's nothing new and no one will remember what we've done. If you identify with that, then this message is for you. 
My children are probably like, that sounds like dad. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) All right. These words in Ecclesiastes were written by King Solomon. I'll assume some of you know much more about Solomon than I do, and I'll assume some of you know less, and so we'll do just a little backstory on King Solomon. He was the third king of Israel. He was the son of David. His mother was actually Bathsheba, which if you know anything about the backstory, is David's largest error, sin, against God. But Solomon is the son of that relationship. His name means peace. His dad, David, happy Father's Day, his dad set him up to succeed. His dad conquered every enemy on his behalf so that when he walked into his kingship, he could keep the peace and reign with peace like his name. His dad, David, wanted to build a temple for the Lord. The Lord said, no, you're not going to build it, but I will let your son Solomon build it. And then his dad, David, spent the rest of his own life getting everything ready for Solomon to build that temple. He had cedars ready, the money ready, stones ready. He set his son up to succeed. And God was on his side. The Lord told David, as David recites in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 5 and 6, And from among my sons, for the Lord has given me many, he chose Solomon to succeed me on the throne of Israel and to rule over the Lord's kingdom. He said to me, Your son Solomon will build my temple and its courtyards, for I have chosen him as my son, and I will be his father what an amazing beginning. Could you believe that, that if God said that about you? Right at the beginning of your life, I will be your father. In 2 Samuel, it says that the Lord loved the child, being Solomon, and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. Not only does his name mean peace and he will reign in peace, he actually has the number one prophet in the land show up at the beginning of his life and say, by the way, God loves you so much, he wants you to be called beloved of the Lord. How many people had that start in life? Just thinking of the contrast of what we read in Ecclesiastes versus that start. At your birth, a prophet shows up and says, I want you to know you're loved by the Lord. I also personally contrast that with being born and then being named Bo. And then growing up and all my siblings had names from the Bible. And I got old enough and wise enough to ask, where is my name in the Bible? And my mother said, it's from the rainbow of Noah's Ark. And I bought it. Years of therapy. (laughs) Solomon had a good start. How in the world 
did he get to Ecclesiastes. One other thing I want to read again in lieu of Father's Day are the very last words that David, Solomon's dad, wrote about him. It's actually in scripture. It's a psalm, Psalm 72. And it begins a psalm of Solomon. Now the Hebrew thereof can also mean for, and I believe my interpretation and some other theologians agree that this is a psalm for Solomon. Give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all and may the hills be fruitful. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy and to crush their oppressors. May they fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky. Yes, forever. May the king's rule be refreshing like the spring rain on freshly cut grass, like the showers that water the earth. May all the godly flourish during his reign. May there be abundant prosperity until the moon is no more. May he reign from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Desert nomads will bow before him. His enemies will fall before him in the dust. The western kings of Tarshish and other distant lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts all kings will bow before him and all nations will serve him. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy and he will rescue them. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious to him. Long live the king. May the gold of Sheba be given to him May the people always pray for him and bless him all day long. May there be abundant grain throughout the land, flourishing even on the hilltops. May the fruit trees flourish like the trees of Lebanon, and may the people thrive like grass in a field. May the king's name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun shines. May all nations be blessed through him and bring him praise. Praise the Lord, God, the God of Israel, who alone does such wonderful things. Praise his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This ends the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Anybody get a letter like that from their dad? I mean, that's pretty good, right? I could read scripture to prove to you that all of that was fulfilled. If you have read 1 Kings recently, if you're going through the one-year Bible, you would have read it, but I'll sum it up. God meets Solomon in a dream, gives him supernatural wisdom to judge fairly, just like was prayed. He provides judgment for the people who are oppressed. There was so much prosperity, silver was worthless. They had peace on all sides, the nation of Israel, and people from everywhere came to listen to Solomon's wisdom and give him gifts. On top of fulfilling everything in the prayer, he just so happened to write 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. I've written 12, so I'm gaining on him. He wrote books on botany and zoology. He rebuilt cities, 
built the temple that his father had prepared, after which God appeared to him a second time, much like the first, exactly like the first, built a palace for himself and another for his wife. He truly had everything, and yet, despite his beginning, his ending words were what we read in Ecclesiastes. So what went wrong? I want to then contrast his beginning with what went wrong in Scripture. All the way back before there was a single king in the nation of Israel, right before Israel was going to enter the promised land, Moses, in Deuteronomy, gave the nation several specific warnings, and one of them actually related to when they would ask for a king. So I'm going to read through it, start to make a mental checklist in your head of what Moses warned the Israelites about. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you and take it over and live in it and then say, I will select a king like all the nations surrounding me, you must select without fail a king whom the Lord your God chooses. They got it right with Solomon because God said, I choose Solomon. From among your fellow citizens, you must appoint a king. You may not designate a foreigner who is not one of your fellow Israelites. They're good there. Moreover, he must not accumulate and start the list now. Horses for himself or allow the people to return to Egypt to do so. For the Lord has said, you must never again return that way. Furthermore, he must not marry many wives, lest his affections turn aside, and he must not accumulate much silver and gold. When he sits on his royal throne, he must make a copy of this law on a scroll given to him by the Levitical priests. It must be constantly, or must be with him constantly, and he must read it as long as he lives, so that he may learn to revere the Lord as God and observe all the words of this law and these statutes and carry them out. Then he will not exalt himself above his fellow citizens or turn from the commandments to the right or left. And he and his descendants will enjoy many years ruling over his kingdom in Israel. Pretty clear cut. Pretty good potential ending. But in 1 Kings 10, and we'll jump around a little bit in 1 Kings 10. Again, starting in verse 14. It says, Solomon received 666 talents of gold per year. If you are an end times enthusiast, resist the urge to take the plane to Revelation land and just stay here. There's no end times thing we're going to be talking about for this 666 talents of gold per year, but what it equated to the best of my study is about $1.25 billion a year. Just scraping by. All of King Solomon's cups were made of gold and all the household items in the palace of the Lebanon forest were made of pure gold. There were no silver items for silver was not considered very valuable in Solomon's time. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 
horses. He kept them in assigned cities and in Jerusalem. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones. Cedar was as plentiful as sycamore fig trees are in the lowlands. Solomon acquired his horses from Egypt and from Q. The king's traders purchased them from Q. I th- think it's interesting that um, in one of the descriptions it says that the Israel one of their borders was with Egypt. So it's not like Egypt was on the other side of the world. You know what I mean? God took the Israelites to the promised land. It wasn't a long journey backwards, but he still asked them not to make it. In 1 Kings 11, it continues on Solomon one after one, just not hitting those marks. King Solomon fell in love with many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, again from Egypt, including Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They came from nations about which the Lord had warned the Israelites. You must not establish friendly relations with them. If you do, they will surely shift your allegiances to their gods. But Solomon was irresistibly attracted to them. A better Uh, translation, in my opinion, was yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. Uh, It wasn't that he was irresistibly attracted to them. It was that he insisted on it. The Hebrew word insinuated gluing together. He chose to glue himself together with these women. He had 7,000 or 7,000, 700 royal wives and 300 concubines. His wives had a powerful influence over him. When Solomon became old, his wives shifted his allegiance to other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And beyond here, I just can't believe that this is the description. Solomon worshipped the Sidonian goddess Astarte and the detestable Ammonite god Milcom. Solomon did evil in the Lord's sight. He did not remain loyal to the Lord like his father David had. Furthermore, on the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for the detestable Moabite god Chemosh and for the detestable Ammonite god Milcom. He built high places for all his foreign wives, all 700, so they could burn incense and make sacrifices to their gods. The Lord was angry with Solomon because he had shifted his allegiance away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him on two occasions and had warned him about this very thing so that he would not follow other gods And here's the kicker, but he did not obey the Lord's command. And the result was that, in contrast to his beginning, everything is meaningless. He was actually the smartest guy in the world. And that's not an exaggeration. The Lord said, I'm going to give you supernatural wisdom. There's never been a king before you. There won't come one after you like you. If that's his ending, what chance do you and I have? Uh, One Chinese pastor, apparently, who spent 20 years of his life imprisoned for his faith, said, I have seen many people have good beginnings, but few have good endings. 
Things just kept getting worse for Israel, by the way. Right after Solomon, his son, came into power, 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel were ripped away from his ruling. And so now the nation was split. And eventually, after increased idol worship throughout all of Israel and Judah, Israel would make their way into exile in Babylon. Again, contrast. So is it true? Is this our ending? Is everything meaningless? As if to mock what Solomon penned when he said, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. 200 years later, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. Look, I am about to do something new. Now it begins to happen. This is the Lord speaking through him. Do you not recognize it? Yes, I will make a road in the desert and paths in the wilderness. The wild animals of the desert honor me, the jackals and ostriches, because I put water in the desert and streams in the wilderness to quench the thirst of my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might praise me. Isaiah is writing this because all of Israel is about to go into exile, and he's prophetically speaking about their future release from captivity back to the promised land. I think that captivity and even the imagery of the wilderness and the desert is reminiscent of the state of mind that Solomon had at the end of his life. But that doesn't have to be our end. Remember, in contrast, God is doing a new thing. There is a way through the monotonous wilderness, the monotonous desert, the seemingly endless expanse of not knowing what to do or fighting against things in front of you and never making it to your end destination. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Most of us in this room, I'm assuming, most of us know that everything's not meaningless. Most of us know our final destination is with the Father. Most of us are aware of the truth that Jesus is that way, but I feel like Ecclesiastes is timely because maybe some of us are in the mindset of everything is meaningless. And Jesus is the way, the road in the desert. When everything changes shape and you don't know which way to go, he's not going to be overcome by it. And when you can't see very far ahead, He's still going to be the way through the wilderness, back to the Father. Along the way, he promised to provide streams and water. And he does that through his Holy Spirit. Jesus said that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and let it the one who believes in me drink just as the scripture says from within him will flow rivers of living water. 
Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were going to receive for the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But in contrast to the desert, God has given us the Holy Spirit to refresh us along the way, out of captivity, back to the promised land with the Father. In fact, while Jesus was meeting with a woman at the well and asked her for water, he said to her, if you had known the gift of God and who it said to you, give me some water to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said to him, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he gave us this well and drank from it himself along with his sons and his livestock. And Jesus replied, everyone who drinks some of this water will never be thirsty again. Oh, who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. If you're like me, kind of a math geek, there's still part of this formula that's missing. I've got a way and I've got water, but I don't have food. I wish I was a survivalist. I'm just a city guy. But a part of me is like, where's the food? Later in John 4, Jesus actually said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. So today... I'm just going on the assumption that we're here in Ecclesiastes for a reason, that some of us feel like those words at the beginning that Gary wrote were what's most true about our lives. And I feel like this is a morning where we can be reminded that there is a way out of that captivity mindset that God preordained that he would give his spirit to you to refresh you along the way as you are sustained by doing the work and the will of the Father. In contrast to Ecclesiastes, there is a way out of the cyclical hell of the first 11 verses. Happy Father's Day. That's God's gift to us. Freedom from sin, from the endless pursuit of dead works, and ultimately from the depressed mindset that can't set his eyes beyond the meaninglessness of this life to any semblance of hope. Like Solomon, God the Father wants us to be his child, his beloved, and he's stopped at nothing to make a way for our end to be as good, if not better, than our beginning I believe today he wants to convince us that we don't need to be overcome by the despairing and ultimately apathetic feeling resulting from the lie that history is going to repeat itself and that our efforts are useless. Instead, I think he wants us to get back on board with the truth that he broke history 2,000 years ago when Jesus came on the scene. And very similar to Psalm 72, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives 
and the regaining of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and followed it up by saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. I feel like the Father is inviting some of us back into following in Jesus' footsteps. Taking on Jesus' attitude of humility as opposed to Solomon's pride and with obedience committing ourselves to making the Father's will our only work. Any other way is meaningless. In preparing, I felt like the Lord had three responses for us. For some of us, like Solomon, we need to respond by repenting of sin. Solomon ended Ecclesiastes with these words. Having heard everything, I have reached this conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. Some of us today know that we are outside of that duty. If that's you, I want to encourage you with something I read in preparing this week from my very favorite Bible teacher, Derek Prince, titled, What If We Stumble? Suppose that we stumble in our Christian walk and even fall. Does that mean we have failed and there is nothing we can do about it? Certainly not. Here are the words of encouragement from King David. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. That's from Psalm 37. David wrote these words from personal experience. He knew what it was to fall. At one period, he committed adultery with the wife of a friend. And then to cover his guilt, he procured the death of the man whose wife he had seduced. And you thought the bachelorette was messed up. For a time, he tried to keep his sin hidden, but God in his mercy brought it all out into the light through the ministry of the prophet Nathan, same one that blessed Solomon. Through confession and repentance, David was finally forgiven and restored. The physical and emotional agony that David went through before he was willing to confess his sin is vividly described in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. It's reminiscent, of, for me, of the same tone that Solomon had. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Thank God for that last phrase, you forgave. Never let the devil persuade you that you have gone too far or that your sin is too grievous for God to forgive. Remember, the devil is the accuser of all Christians. His aim is to keep us feeling guilty, unworthy, defeated, but God has made provision for our full forgiveness and restoration. Maybe that's you today. I also believe in preparing that there are some of us who need to respond by repenting of doing work that is either outside of the Lord's will or without love. 
Perhaps you know of the verse in Matthew 7 that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons and do many powerful deeds? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. And for some, we are doing the work without love. For this was Jesus' commandment in John 15. My commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. I feel some today, and I'm in this boat, need to be doing the Father's will and doing it with love. And I feel like this is a moment of a cease and desist, a stop work order, to stop and get real with him and make sure that you finish better than you started. Solomon was the wisest man in the world and did more deeds than you and I will ever do. I know millionaires who the top thing they've done in their life wouldn't even make it onto Solomon's resume. But he still ended in Ecclesiastes. And finally, I think this is for all of us that we can respond by following Christ. Some, it might be the first time, the sense of meaninglessness and the wilderness might be images that make sense to you and you actually believe that there's a father who has something better for you out of the captivity of that mindset and into hope. And some of us have already believed that and we need to step back on the path. You've heard it said here a bunch of times, the most important step is the next one. That might be you today. I'm going to end in prayer through these things. If any of them or something that you would like to agree with, just pray with me as I go through. You don't even have to listen to me. You can just start praying to God all on your own. But that's how we're going to end today praying, and then Gary will come up and give us a benediction. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the sweet time of worship. Thank you for the truth in your word where you contrast the fallenness of us and our best efforts without you with your son and the hope that we can have in him. You made the way. We want to follow your son in that way. We are desperate and we need your spirit to be what overflows from within us. And today we want to recommit ourselves to making sure that we are doing the will of your Father. Just like it was your food on earth, we want it to be the same for us and we realize that anything we do outside of that is going to end up as meaningless. Father, for those of us today who have sinned to repent of, things that you clearly spelled out in your word is wrong. We confess those to you right now and believe that much like David, your servant, that you will forgive us of our transgressions as we confess them to you. 
We are sorry for not completing the work that you gave us to do by obeying you and realize that the end of disobedience is a life that is meaningless. Similarly, Lord, for those of us here today that needed to be reminded that what will sustain us is doing your work, not just the work that we think is your work or the work that we're allowed to do in your church and can call church work, but actually your work is what we need to be doing in love like your son. Thank you for the reminder. We just hold open-handedly anything that is on our minds that we need to accomplish and ask for you to either take it out of our hands or to correct us on how to love the work that's in our hands. Finally, we thank you, Father, for making a way, for making your son the way, the truth, and the life. We believe in the truth that you made a way unto us to have life with you out of captivity, out of hopelessness, out of the lie of a meaningless life. We take the next step in obedience and ask that you would inform us on how to love you better and do the work that is in your will for us to do as we follow your son. Thank you, God, for another day to gather together and worship, to hear the truth of your word, and to be able to respond to you individually and as a church. Amen. Thank you, Bo. I have it under good authority that if you, for those who have children that you might want to pick them up outside. I also have it under good authority that there might be some messages for fathers on the ground somewhere. Also, there is a first come, first serve opportunity for parents, I think, yes? Yep, for, uh, for, for fo- fathers to get uh, root beer floats, I believe. Notice I was told it was a first come, first serve. So, if you have your children uh, and you want to pick them up, they're outside. Um, I thought it was interesting. Bo shared that at the beginning of uh, Ecclesiastes, we, we really see a pessimistic view of an individual struggling to find out what life is about. And at the end, he says, um, in the next to last verse in the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole purpose of man. So for fathers, I have a blessing for you today with that in mind. Fathers, those who fear the Lord are secure. You will be a refuge to your children. The fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. Fathers, have a blessed day. Be that life-giving fountain to your family. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day.